Just how ready is this country for legalized marijuana? We're going to get some interesting insight because Ontario is not as ready as some other places. Some provinces have really, really taken this on. They're ready. They've got barcodes set up. They could open the doors later today. And in fact, we may get a vote later today, tomorrow, sometime very soon. And all that will be left for legalized marijuana legislation in Canada will be royal assent. And that's just one of those things that you sign off on, right? How a bill becomes a law. We'll talk with Deepak Anand in about an hour from now. He is a global cannabis industry expert. I don't know about you. You know what I'm interested in? The black market. I want to know what's going to happen to the black market. So we'll ask Deepak about that. We are also going to talk about rural schools not having all that many students in them. And when you don't have all that many students, you don't tend to have a lot of teachers. And you lose out on things like guidance and music and, in a way, maybe phys ed. At least a specialized teacher. There aren't many left. But we'll discuss that because People for Education have a new report coming out on Monday. That's coming up next hour. Video game addiction. Know anybody who could fall into that category? That's coming up in about a half hour as well. I I want to clarify things with Maryland. I don't know if we did yesterday. We were talking about a number of things, and then I just kind of threw in, hey, you want to go for coffee tomorrow? Because Maryland and I have been, well, Maryland's been ready for a date for a long time now, and I've promised to do it, and I haven't been keeping up my end of the bargain. So tomorrow, I want to take Maryland out, but I want to make this official. I want to make it right. So later this hour, we'll give Maryland a call, and I'll ask her out. I don't know how it's going to go. I'm not sure, but I'm willing to do it. And you can go out quite early in the morning, now that the World Cup is on, and have yourself a beverage. You can have a beer, 9 o'clock in the morning. And that's something that's kind of flown under the radar. So we'll pick it up and put it on the radar in about 10 minutes. First up, though, I want to congratulate the steering committee and the volunteers and everybody involved with last night's Hockey Canada Foundation Gala. Wow. The convention center, it always looks great for whatever event is on. But last night may have set a new level. Last night was tremendous and there were a thousand people in attendance thank you if you were there helping out because you weren't just helping out the hockey canada foundation maybe just maybe you were helping out the city of london joining us right now is the general manager of tourism london mr john winston he was there last night at the convention center mr winston how are things very well michael very very well and and you said it so aptly i mean it surpassed expectation last night it was extraordinary and that's just it if you had written down okay this is the total amount of money we would expect that the event would raise uh this is the total number of people who would be here and you'd written down maybe the highest expectation you could have don't you think last night went beyond it it did and uh, i can say this unequivocally that um in the 15 years that this event has been held we have, I think, raised more money, sold more tables, uh, uh, you know, pre-sold the entire golfing event, which is today, by the way, and you couldn't ask for a better day than today, uh, golfing at the, Highland, at, the, uh, at the Hunt Club and at uh, Redtail. And everybody's having a blast. Uh, last evening, uh, you know, the emotions that uh, were exhibited uh, by the presentations from Mike Babcock, Ryan Smith, and Danielle Goyette, who received the Order of Hockey, uh, the emotions and the <clears throat> incredible uh, humbleness that they that they showed in accepting these uh, the, the, these designations was truly uh, tru- truly mind-boggling. And I think we've achieved 
clearly we've achieved, Mike, we're, we're at a level, we are a confident city. We have the capacity, the ability, and the degree of excellence in order to showcase whatever this country has to offer. We, we, we have, we've reached that benchmark, and we, I was so proud of everything that we saw last night, the way the tables were set up, the food, the, uh, the, just the atmosphere, the professionalism exhibited by, by the staff, the, the visitors from right across the country. You could not have asked for a better public relations uh, venue uh, in, in terms of supporting and promoting our city. Uh, it was truly a, a very special night and one I think we'll remember for a very long time. There are two Hockey Canada events that have happened really, John, in the last eight months. And we're talking with John Winston, General Manager of Tourism London. We're looking back to last night, the Hockey Canada Foundation Gala, and maybe some of what happens now with an event like that. Because when Hockey Canada came and played a pre-tournament game against the Czech Republic ahead of the World Junior Hockey Championship, there were probably expectations then of, well, if, if we sell 5,000 seats, that, that would be good. And, you know, if it's a 9 nothing game, we can't help it if people don't stay into the third period. Well, we had a hockey game at Budweiser Gardens where the place was sold out. It was 9 nothing, and everybody stayed right until the end. So that's yet another one of those things. <sighs> Can we can we ever get back on the road of thinking, hey, maybe just maybe we could still have world junior dreams of our own? Mike, take this from my lips. We will get a world junior hockey championship uh, in this city in the next few years. I can tell you the sense of the, 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 the trust that we've developed, the relationship we've developed over the last 10 years with Hockey Canada. You remember, we've gone through three bid processes. The last one we lost out to Vancouver. We projected significant dollar uh, revenues f for the event, but unfortunately we did not have the capacity to be guarantors. And Vancouver, uh, in, in fact, the province of, uh, of, of British Columbia guaranteed $10 million, plus added another $2.5 million to the operating line of the event. Uh, and so you can't blame them for doing what they, you know, for accepting that particular bid. But we've consistently said that the, the essence of junior hockey is rooted within the communities like London. And without a doubt, London is considered nationally as one of the cornerstones of junior hockey. And we are deserving of this opportunity. I know that we would put on a tremendous show. You know, we partnered with Windsor on, on, on this last bid. They're enthusiastic. They're supporters. They have a great hockey tradition. Why not? And, and I think over the next few years, we're going to see it happen. And, uh, you know, we're going to do everything that we can to ensure that that does happen. John, for a while, it looked like an event like the World Junior Hockey Championship was gone from our grasp because Toronto, Montreal, Calgary, Edmonton, these cities are just bigger. They just have bigger venues. The sense that you're getting from what we see maybe from other events taking place, has it stepped back down a little bit so that we can reach up and maybe try and grab it again? Without a doubt, Mike. I predicted this all along. I, I think, you know, trying to uh, go beyond... Uh, what the level of junior hockey uh, into the bigger cities. Uh, I, I predicted, and I think I'm correct in this prediction, that junior hockey is our NHL. And uh, junior hockey is not the NHL 
of the larger cities because, again, you're looking at a tier below the, the level of professional hockey, and certainly the interest is far greater at our level than it would be in major cities like Toronto and Montreal, and, and that's perfectly understandable. But I think the last few years it's, it's been shown that bringing it back to the roots, and, and whether we do it every other year or, or consider doing this you know, you know, strategically as an important way of saying thank you to the communities who support this, uh, this great sport, uh, I think that will go a long way in balancing the whole equation and uh, creating a very vibrant and viable uh, uh, you know, event that will raise money uh, for, for hockey development in our, in our country. You, you, you know, I have to also remember that last night's event, uh, we have, I know we've raised well in excess of a million dollars for this event. I'm predicting probably between one to two, three million, one, 1. 1.2 to maybe 1.3 after last night's show with uh, you, you know, the money that was raised uh, you know, during the silent auction and also the live auction was incredible. But also have to remember that half of that money is going to stay in London, put into an endowment fund to support the development of hockey for kids who are underprivileged, kids who can you know can't afford uh, you know that new hockey stick and can't afford those skates or those pads or what have you, and and uh, and it's it's a tremendous legacy. I mean, hockey is part of our culture, and and it's something that the Hockey Canada say says is good for life, and it. It teaches, uh, you know, citizenship. It teaches teamwork. Uh, teaches leadership. All of the good qualities that we want uh, our future generations to hold, and those values are important. And hockey plays a key role in in cementing those values. John, the last thing we would have to talk about is dollars, because as you mentioned, Vancouver and Victoria were able to put up some big dollars and then throw in another $2 million, and that's always a concern that, that you kind of have to overspend to get something. Could yep. you see a winning bid that maybe did not have as much money as another bid attached to it? I can, Mike, and I think we have proven with this event, we've proven by the fact that we put together a pro forma when we put our bid package together that, you know, always we overestimate the expenditures and underestimate uh, the income that's going to be generated from the event. We were confident that it was going to make a lot of money for Hockey Canada. I think we're proving to them, uh, especially after the, this, this, this next few days, this city is capable of doing it, and we have the capacity and the will and the community pride to ensure that that would happen. And I, and I think we'll get there. I really do. All right. Any idea when the next opportunity might come, or is that still in the future somewhere? That's still in the future. I think I think they're revisiting the way they're they're you know they're 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 going forward in terms of uh, requesting proposals with regard to the event. I think there's some adjustments being made. We don't know what they are, but I think ultimately it'll be in our favor. Great, John. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mike. As John Winston, General Manager, Tourism London, just wanted to kind of. Pick John Winston's brain a little bit with regard to what may happen now that Hockey Canada has had a look around. And really, if you were at that game between Canada and the Czech Republic, thank you. If you were there last night, thank you. Because we didn't even touch on this aspect of it, but what this city has become. You go back to when we first bid for the 2001 Canada Summer Games, you compare to where London is now. And John used one word, and I think it does exist, confidence. This city can be confident that, yeah, we can pull that off. Yeah, we have one of the best volunteer bases in the world. I put our volunteer base up against anybody. Good luck finding one that would be more generous. 
I've been lucky enough to travel around, and I've been to other Memorial Cups and other centers. And while people there are phenomenal, and they bend over backwards for you, London does the exact same thing. So I'd put our volunteer base up against anybody. But the number of volunteers that we have, unreal. And we've got that. And you look at the support. It has been there. So you look at the city itself. It's very conducive to a big event. If you can host the World Figure Skating Championships, you can host just about anything. So World Juniors, it's it's finally back out there. And I think anybody who has participated in those two Hockey Canada events has really shown what this city is all about. So again, thank you. We'll be talking about video game addiction in just a little while. But up next, I want to talk about a story that's kind of flown under the radar. The World Cup of Soccer is on, and we had discussed leading up to it that Toronto was serving alcoholic beverages early in the morning when matches began, and really nobody else was able to do that. Well, that's different. If you've been anywhere early in the morning to see a match, you realize that. We'll get the story of how this came about next. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. We had a discussion week and a half ago about how early was too early to serve booze and the attitude a lot of times is well how early do you want it i don't know about you when i'm having my oatmeal in the morning i'm not having it with a rum and coke i have no desire to go to the fridge and pop the cap off a beer and i don't think i ever will but if we look at this from the culture of watching a soccer match You want to sit there and it doesn't matter if it's 9 in the morning. What if you've been up since 4? What have you been excited about this soccer match? What about the cultural aspect in Europe where they handle drinking a whole lot differently than we do? For good, for bad, again, that was part of our discussion a couple of weeks ago because it was not legal to serve alcohol, certainly in London, Ontario, and many other municipalities, before 11 o'clock. Nothing had changed for the World Cup. Well, that has now changed. In fact, you can get a beer for nine o'clock starts province-wide. So joining us to discuss this is Jürgen Bell, who is the president of the German Canadian Club. Jürgen, I want to ask how you're enjoying the World Cup, but I know Mexico beat Germany in their first match. Sunday must have been a little tough. (laughs) Yeah, Sunday was tough and uh, we're all a little bit uh, nervous now. Uh, We've now uh, realized, uh, even though Germany is World Cup champions, uh, that they are fallible. Uh, that any team that can really get their game together, that Germany has to has to have their A game for every game from now on. Well, no doubt they have said those same things in training the last couple of days. So we'll yeah. wait and see what happens there. And they're not the only surprise so far in the World Cup, at least. Yes, there's been a number of teams that have uh, uh, surprised everybody. Uh, you know, England has. Uh, has uh, got uh, a win in their group. Uh, they beat uh, Algeria two to one, and and that's a great result for them because they they have the stigma of being really lambasted by their press, and that's uh, great for them. I hope that they can they can go further, uh, but we'll have to see. They've got a very a lot of young players, and uh, hopefully that they'll be able to handle the pressure. When we talk about surprises, 
you got one of those yourself leading up to the World Cup. We had been discussing the fact that alcohol rules under the Alcohol and Gaming Commission stated that you could not serve alcohol before 11 o'clock. Matches begin sometimes at 9, sometimes at 10, and that makes it a whole lot earlier than 11. And for somebody who wants to go and have a, a social beverage as they sit and watch a match, that wasn't going to be a possibility. But then something happened. Jurgen, what happened? Well, I mean, what what we found out is, and uh, I don't know how the wheels were were spinning at the time, but we received a visit. Uh, I would say uh, two days after the election, I believe, uh, when the liquor inspector actually came to the German Canadian Club and gave us the great news that uh, that uh, province wide, I believe that that all uh, licensed establishments would be able to open at 9 a.m. for the month of the World Cup from June the 14th to July the 15th. And not just open, but serve alcohol at 9 a.m.? Ab- absolutely. Uh, I know there are some games at 7 a.m., but for <laughs> I'm, I'm sure that nobody would really care to have a beverage at that early in the morning. But it's a, it's a huge culture. Uh, soccer is a huge culture of uh, having a beverage, uh, watching their favorite team play. And we were ecstatic at the club, and I'm sure every other uh, uh, licensed establishment is very happy about it because all of a sudden I saw in the Facebook postings of some of the places that I frequent is the fact that they they started promoting their their establishment that they would be open for every every World Cup game and so forth and so on from 9 a.m. on. So that's great for uh, for London. It's great for every uh, pl- every city and town that wishes to do that uh, because I think uh, the bigger cities, especially Toronto, London, Windsor, and so forth, it's a huge economic impact for everybody, especially small businesses like us. We're talking with Jürgen Bell, president of the German-Canadian Club, and we aren't talking about Germany versus Mexico. That's gone, but we are talking about the fact that a change province-wide is now allowing establishments to serve alcohol as of 9 a.m. You had been getting a lot of calls beforehand. You'd been talking with people who would come into the German-Canadian Club. They were a little concerned. How are they feeling now? Well, they're feeling very happy about it. They're uh, they're feeling that uh, that that they can they can enjoy the day, the event, especially when Germany plays in 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 a in a format and in a way that is traditional for for German people. I'm sure the English people for all for all the teams that are involved in the World Cup. It's just all part uh, part and partial to uh, celebrating the World Cup and watching your favorite team play. Now there are people who will say and have said, you know, why do you? What's the difference? Nine a.m., ten a.m., eleven a.m. But you have to kind of put into perspective for us the social aspect, maybe in Europe, and and it's something that we do not follow here, do we? Yeah, no, we don't. It's 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 a it's it, oh, it's it's hard to explain. It's just that uh, that in North America, uh, I'm particularly in Canada. The, uh, the the liquor laws are are established and a little bit archaic, a little bit, but they've really progressed over the last twenty years in allowing certain things, uh, especially regarding uh, alcoholic beverages. They're becoming a little more lenient and understanding uh, what this uh, this entire culture is about. And it it doesn't it doesn't promote drinking, uh, and it it just says it the the beverage is available for those who wish to partake. Uh, I what what concerned me was that if we couldn't open earlier in the day, what is something, especially what concerns a licensee, is in the culture where it is in regards to drinking, the people uh, will tend to either binge drink, pre-drink, 
and then it's up to the licensee to control that person when they enter your establishment. And that's, that is not a very comfortable feeling when you have to monitor everybody uh, in, in, in regards to what their intake is. Gotcha. Well, yeah. it has worked out in the way that now maybe you don't have to have people binge drinking or pre-drinking, and they can just come in and enjoy one or two and Absolutely. find a safe Absolutely. way home. And Absolutely. Here's hoping yeah. that, uh, that things are good on Saturday afternoon when Germany faces Sweden. I hope everybody at the German-Canadian Club has a happy afternoon. Jürgen, thanks for this. No problem. Thank you for calling. Jürgen Bill, president of the German-Canadian Club. So, through the course of the World Cup, that means until runs to July 15th. That means that establishments, should they choose to, can serve alcohol starting at 9 o'clock. We have news coming up. If you have any thoughts on that, because this is a story that's kind of flown under the radar, as Jürgen says, two days after the election, that's kind of when the Alcohol and Gaming Commission went around saying, yeah, you want to do it? You want to do it? Province-wide? Okay. Go for it. What do you think of this? Is it okay? Do you mind it? Is it not a big deal at all? Or is it something that you think, no, that's, that's the wrong message to send? Let me know. 519-643-2222. You can email Mike at 980cfpl.ca. You can tweet me at Stubbs980. We'll talk video game addiction, and we're going to go to news right now, but in the next half hour, I want to try and give Marilyn a call. I want to make it official. I want to ask her for coffee tomorrow. She deserves to have a proper proposal, so that's what we'll do. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Just yesterday, the World Health Organization declared that compulsively playing video games qualifies as a new mental health condition. They call it gaming disorder. And they want to be prepared to identify the issue. Now, we live in a world that is changing very quickly. I don't know about you. If you run into not necessarily issues in your house, but video games are not a new thing. In the late 70s, there were people who played Pong for hours upon hours and hours. I would say that they had more of an issue than somebody who is playing, you name it, whether it's you know, going back a few years, World of Warcraft whether it is Call of Duty, whether it's Fortnite. Maybe Fortnite's a little bit different. We can get to that. But have you had discussions or reasons for discussion in your house about video games? Because you know what? We have. As a kid, I played video games. As a university student, played video games. I still play video games with my son. I don't find I play them as much on my own anymore. I don't know what it is. One day, I just kind of thought... Yeah, eh, it's not there anymore. But they're in our culture and have been for decades. I mean, we're approaching 50 years of video games in our world. And Atari and ColecoVision and Intellivision gave way to next-gen platforms like Sega Genesis and Super Nintendo. And from there, things just took off. And video games are a beautiful thing now. I mean, some of the things that you can see, the fact that somebody created this. And by beauty, I mean you watch it and you just think, wow, this is amazing. Somebody made this. This is wild. But... 
we tend to question screen time a lot. And I think that's what this comes down to for a lot of people. But with video games, it digs deeper than that. How many hours a day should people spend on screens? Well, it becomes a question of how many hours a day do people not spend on screens? How far away from your phone are you at any time during the day? What are you looking at? If you're just looking at Instagram, if you're just looking at Facebook, or you're just watching somebody's story on Snapchat, you know, what, what are you doing? You're just passing the time, but you're doing it on a screen. When it comes to video games, things are a little bit different because there's more of a reward. You're not bored and passing the time. The reason why this has been declared a mental health condition is because you can liken what happens in a video game to what happens in the world of a gambler. And that's where things kind of cross a line that you have to pay more attention to. Where if you are someone who is driven to gambling, your fuel is money. Your fuel is winning. Video games don't necessarily have the money aspect of it, but you still have that fuel of winning and you have that fuel of reward when you do. And that's where it comes from. Have you had any conversations about video games in your household? Or do you know someone who you would look at and say, yeah, that's that's unhealthy. Do you go over and and see a grandkid and say, what's he doing? He's been playing a video game for an hour. He's been playing a video game for two hours. This can't be healthy. Or is all of this just an overreaction? We'll debate it in a moment. Phone lines are open. 519-643-2222. Is everything overblown on video games? Because this is not a new thing. It's not a new thing. I don't know whether it's becoming worse, and we'll look at one angle that compares two types of video games in just a moment. And maybe, maybe that's an issue now, or is this just something that is being grabbed onto by the media and all of a sudden seems bigger than it really is? 519-643-2222, email mike at 980cfpl.ca, or you can tweet me at stubs980. Back with more in a moment on London Live on Global News Radio, 980cfpl. Having conversations about things, I don't know about you, I'd call it absolutely critical in our world. And we're a lot better at doing it. And people are going to be a lot better off for it in the future. Because it used to be that The attitude of taking your issues, your problems, and just shoving them away, not talking about them, that kind of made them go away, but they never really did. The fact that we're a lot more open to certain types of conversations, that's a good thing in my mind. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody about the amount of time that they are spending playing video games? Or have you maybe needed to have somebody... Start a conversation with you. 519-643-2222. Alan, you are up first on this. How are you doing? I'm well. How are you, Mike? Pretty good, thanks. Good. Um, so, yeah, I've talked to a number of people about this. Uh, you'll see a lot of teenagers or preteens spending hours on end uh, playing video games. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One, the designers and the developers of these games, they purposely design them so they are psychologically addictive with it. They do a lot of research and development to determine, you know, what setup and what way can we make this so that you get, you know, immediate gratification and you keep kept getting those dopamine hits in your brain so that you want to continue to play. That's one thing. Two, 
Um, there's also that social aspect. So, I mean, I'm not a gamer myself, but my understanding is that you can literally interact with other players in the game while you're playing. Unlike when I was a kid and I was playing Atari, where you're, you're playing alongside the people that you're playing with. They could be on the other side of the world, but you, you know them well, on digital, at least on the digital world, and you, you, you start to gain a familiarity with you know, that particular group. And that becomes their social circle, if you know what I mean. And, you know, you, you'll talk to parents and they'll say, oh, well, I've tried to take them off, but, you know, he won't listen to me. And that's where I think parenting comes into play. That's when you unplug the damn device or you disconnect Wi-Fi. You know, I have small kids myself. They're not teenagers, admittedly, yet. They're nine and seven, a little bit easier to control than a 13, 14-year-old. But they have limits. Children need boundaries. And I, honestly, I think a lot of this is that parents are too darn afraid to set boundaries and limits. Well, I, I agree with you in all of that. And I mean, I've gone through the young stage. Now I happen to be in the teenage stage. The hardest part, Alan, that I think you'll encounter is the idea that the world of an adolescent, the world of a teenager has Wi-Fi in it. And so how do you take away Wi-Fi in one part and yet keep it in another? But I think it's just being involved. If you're involved with what your kids are up to and you're not just leaving them in the basement for nine hours at a time, yeah. that that right there is going to help. That right there is going to do part of the job because one of the things that appeared in the Global News article, and you can find that at 980cfpl.ca, you can find it at globalnews.ca, I'll tweet it out in the next commercial break, but... One of the things that it mentioned was families are falling apart. And somebody said, well, yeah, but how did you let it get to that point? Yeah. And, and we see that all the time. And I, I don't want to be critical of other people. I, I get it. Everyone's busy. Everyone has responsibilities. But you have parents that are on their phones themselves. Therefore, it's easier to let your kids be on a video game because then you're left uninterrupted to do whatever you're doing on your phone. So it's a cycle. They're using you as a parent as the... As an example, they're seeing your eyes are on a screen, so, hey, why not them? And then when they go on the screen, you're nowhere to be found telling them, hey, get off the screen. So you're right. The family dynamic has completely changed even from 10 years ago, and this is the symptom of it. Alan, thanks for the call. Thanks. 519-643-2222. Have you ever had a conversation about video games? Andrew, how are you doing? Hi, how are you? Good. Good. I, you know, you you had likened the video games to uh, to gambling. Uh, I think it's more uh, when it comes to addiction, more like a drug because it's that escape from reality. Uh, so you know, triggering the, the the same same parts of the brain as uh, as some drugs do, and uh, and as a, you know, drug addicts uh, being uh, looking for that escape from whatever reality it is that they live in. In a video game, they're able to uh, to achieve that. Well, I mean, yeah, a, a drug is a good one. And I think gambling can be seen as a drug too. It's how it makes that that how it makes your brain feel. And Alan mentioned, you know, that surge of dopamine that you can get when you get that reward. It's whatever it is that's providing you with a reward. If it's if it's drugs, if it's a win in gambling, if it's part of a video game, it is that. And as humans, we can't help but be attracted to that. And that's where one of those challenges comes in. Absolutely. You know, I, I think I hopefully that you know. As silly as it may sound, you know, that people do get addicted. You can be addicted to anything that makes your life unmanageable. Sure. You know, so hopefully, you know, it, it, you know, the stigma with mental illness, and maybe it will help somebody. So, anyways, thanks for talking about it. Yeah. Andrew, thank you for the call. 
519-643-2222. I wanted to look back in time a little bit and look at maybe why, because this is what I'm having trouble figuring out. Why is this a thing now? Because it's been a thing for a while. And Alan raised a couple of good points. There is that societal aspect of it where, yes, you can be not side-by-side with somebody, but playing side-by-side with them. You know, I I happen to know a, a friend of a child in our neighborhood, and he's got two people who he would consider friends. He's got other friends too, but two people in particular, and he would consider them friends they've never met in person. Now, they do Skype, but they met while playing a game that each of them liked. And you know what? They've turned out to be great friends. And I think one lives in the U.S., one lives in the U.K., obviously one lives in Canada, and yet they've become friends. I don't think there's anything wrong with that, where our world is that open. And the hard part is, and I think you can liken this to a lot of businesses, there are a lot of businesses where the young people need to be running things, and they're not. And you've got people who are running things who are trying to figure out what's coming and just don't have that grasp of it because they don't live in that world. They don't live in that world where the Internet has always been there. They don't live in that world where you're not afraid to pick up a device and say, well, I don't know how to work this, but give me a second. I'm going to try five things, and one of them's probably going to turn out, and that'll be fine. So that's what I'm going to do. They don't live in that world. If you go back a few years ago, World of Warcraft was massive. And here's a theory for you to close out the conversation about this. World of Warcraft was massive, but World of Warcraft was about orcs and wizards and all kinds of things that some people, some kids would say, yeah, I'm not interested in the world of orcs and wizards and I don't even, what else is in there? Goblins? Goblins. Not interested in that. Now, the game that is attracting a lot of people is Fortnite. It could be one of many games, but Fortnite is the one that's kind of risen up above the others. And it's a game in which you're up against 100 people, and it's a little shooter game, and you drop to the ground, and you try and be the last one standing. It's like the Hunger Games, but it goes a whole lot faster. And there isn't any of those big stinging bees. Oh, terrible, the big stinging bees from the Hunger Games. So you don't have that. You try to be the last one standing. And as soon as you're shot, you can get back in. And if you make it top 25, well, that's gratification. And if you finish high enough and play enough, you're going to be leveled up. And that's gratification. And that's where it comes from. But ultimately, it's just that involvement. And you can't lose that in in. Parenting is so tough in that you've got to keep that involvement and at one point let them go. So you've got to keep involved, but at the same time be letting them go. Let them learn on their own, but wait a minute, still be involved. And it's a really tough tug of war. And you just do your best. Sometimes it works. Sometimes you jerk the rope too hard. Sometimes you let it go too far. And... That's what it comes down to with kids. With adults, you know what? Video game addiction, as the World Health Organization wants to call it, is an issue. It probably is going to be. You know what's going to be even more difficult in all of this? When virtual reality becomes a whole lot easier than wearing a great big thing on your face. 
When you can put on a pair of sunglasses and when the worlds get even more developed than they are now, that's where I think we have the actual issue with people not going to work, with people thinking they can live in those other worlds. Remember what Avatar did? Okay, picture being an Avatar because that's what's coming. You can email Mike at 980cfpl.ca. You can tweet me at Stubbs980. Up next, I want to make it official. I want to do this officially. I want to call Marilyn and ask her out on a date because I've been promising to take her out. I'm hoping that tomorrow's going to be the day. This is London Live on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Feeling a little, uh, a little nervous. If you have been listening to London Live... Weeks ago, Marilyn said, and maybe I should even say months ago. I don't know if it was months. I hope it's not months ago. I try not to live that busy a life. But let's say weeks ago, Marilyn had said, we should go for coffee sometime. And I said, you know what? We should do that. And then I just haven't set a date. And I was out a few nights ago last week, and a friend of mine, Brian, said, have you asked Marilyn out? Have you taken her out for coffee yet? I I said, no, we haven't gone for coffee. He says, why not? I said, I don't know. So let's see if we can officially make this happen. I want to officially ask Marilyn out on a date tomorrow morning. That's my idea. So, Christian, can we give Marilyn a call? Okay. We're all set? All right. Wish me luck. Whew, I'm a little nervous. Well, is that a sign? I don't think it's a sign. I'll call back. Sometimes this works. Oh, I think it's working. Hello? Hi, Marilyn. It's Mike Stubbs calling from 980 CFPL. How are you? Oh, not too bad, thanks. I was just out uh, this morning. I woke up at 4 and stayed awake because I had to go over to the clinic to have some blood taken. And then I went to my girlfriend, Bonnie's, and then I went to Ovation Shoes, and then I went to the grocery store. It's been a hectic day already. Oh, gosh, you want to believe it. I wanted to call you today because you're always so nice and and you call me. I wanted to be the one to call you today because I wanted to make it official. Would you please do me the honor of accompanying me for coffee tomorrow morning? Sure, that'd be great. Well, you know what? I'll pick you up and then you can guide us from there. How about that? Sure, okay. Now, what time? How does 9.15 work for you? Holy mackerel, Andy, I don't get up till noon. <laughs> no, it's all right, dear. Okay, I probably won't sleep because going out with you is going to be like going out with George Clooney. Well, I'm going to disappoint you in a hurry if that's the way you're feeling. But <laughs> I don't want I don't want to, to keep you up, so you tell me. If, if 9.15 is too early, let's do it a little later. Yeah, but you're in the radio business. You have to get to the station and all that kind of thing. Well, tomorrow, actually, there's a Blue Jays game, so there's a lot of extra time. So you name me a time. All right, 10 o'clock. 10 o'clock it is, and I will pick oh. you up at 10 o'clock. All right. I'll be wearing a blue golf shirt, driving a black Ford Escape, and I will even give you a call to let you know that I'm outside before I come sure, to the door. Okay, okay, then I'll come down. I'll be come down to the lobby about t- 10 to 10. Sounds good. That? It's a date. Okay. 
Okay, dear. Well, thank you very much. Well, thank you, Marilyn. We're all set. Tomorrow, 10 o'clock, I've got a date. News is next. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. It is an absolutely beautiful day. This hour, we're going to talk about rural schools. And we're going to talk about it from the perspective that populations in rural settings have been experiencing decline. When you look overall. I don't want to say every single town, but some rural settings, some towns, population decline. To the point that if you group everybody together, you see a little bit of a downward trend. Doesn't mean that towns are going to become extinct. It's not what it means at all. But we have seen more of a move to larger centers. And when that happens, you do wind up with population issues in schools. So how do you continue to operate a school if you don't have as many people going to it? And what are the kids losing out on? How do you have a football team in high school if your school's population is 100 and not everybody wants to play football? How does this happen? So how much are you missing out on? How do you have a school band? Oh, we have a school band. Uh, They do a great duet. Oh, aren't they? It's amazing. They're duets. They're they're known all over because there are two of them. I mean, you can't have that. You want to give kids as great an experience, as enriched, as full an experience as you can. So we're going to look at that. What does it mean? Do we take some of the schools in an urban setting and say, hey, that one's bursting at the seams? How about if we take some of the kids from that school and bust them to a town? I don't know if they'd be too happy about that. But it does happen in some towns. Some towns with subdivisions. St. Thomas has a bus that runs to Port Stanley. And I think there are other places that do similar things. Because it bolsters the population in Port Stanley. I don't know if they're still doing that. But they have done it in the past. I don't know whether it's scheduled for next year. But I think last year they did. So... Those sorts of things do go on. We'll discuss that at 2.40 with Annie Kidder, one of the founders of People for Education. But one of the other topics that we've been watching very closely this week in the 980 CFPL newsroom is, of course, the legalization of marijuana. It's coming. Are we prepared for it? Not really. In fact, not really at all. If you were to group Ontario and a few of the other provinces, it seems that we kind of lag behind many of them. And so we wanted to get some context as to what this all means, because pretty soon the legislation for marijuana, which has already gone through the Senate and they have taken all of their amendments and they've sent it back. And now House of Commons is looking at it. Eventually, this thing is going to be passed and it's going to be pushed onto royal assent. And as soon as that happens, how a bill becomes a law. Welcome to the legislation. Welcome to legalized marijuana. And then it just depends on when it becomes rolled out. So then what? What happened? What happens to the black market? I'm curious about a lot of these things because in Canada, we've got a lot of provinces. We've got a little mini nations, little mini countries. If you drive from one coast to the other, Canada's a very different place. You can't say that the Maritimes and Quebec and Ontario and the Prairies and BC, yeah, we're all full of Canadians. Yeah, by passport, we are. But lifestyle, culture, beliefs, Way of doing things, speed of doing things, 
a little bit different in each in each each one of the places. And that's part of the beauty of this country. I wouldn't change it for anything. But we got to realize that as a reality. So why don't we get a little thought on this? Why don't we figure out what, first of all, could be happening in the next maybe day, maybe two days, maybe week? They want to get this done before the summer break in the House of Commons. So it's got to be coming soon. That summer break is on the horizon. Let's talk right now with Deepak Anand. He is a global cannabis industry expert. And he's also the vice president of government relations with Cannabis Compliance Incorporated. And we're lucky enough to have him joining London Live this minute. Deepak, how are you? Good, thank you. How are you? Interested to hear your thoughts on what we're heading toward in this country, which is the legalization of marijuana. We have the federal government seems ready to maybe hammer this through before their summer break. At least that's what some are hoping for. What do you think of that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've seen the uh, federal government do a lot of work on this file for quite some time now, from the task force all the way up to the Senate, and most recently up to the House, and now back to the Senate. Um, I think we are expecting to see a vote here very shortly. I would probably predict today or tomorrow at the very latest. Um, that would uh, be an amendment that Senator Harder proposed to making sure that Bill C-45 that deals with cannabis legalization is moved forward to royal assent without further modification. Uh, if that was to happen, we'd probably see royal assent here very quickly, potentially by the end of the week. Uh, and then we know, based on what the Minister of Health has already said, there's probably going to be a delayed implementation of legalization, which would mean we would probably see legalization sometime by August or September. Okay. And would it roll out across the country? Because to ask if the country is ready is kind of a loaded question. Anybody who's traveled our country knows we're kind of a a whole bunch of countries all jammed together in terms of how we operate. How about the readiness of everybody? Where would you put that? Absolutely. So it is federal legalization, meaning it would be legal across the country. We don't have a patchwork of regulations like some U.S. states uh, do. But as you correctly pointed out, uh, you know, we do have different provinces in this country that, uh, you know, according to divisions of power, are going to deal with cannabis legalization differently. We've already seen some provinces come out very quickly in support, and and some are very prepared. Um, I was just in New Brunswick, and uh, I have to tell you, Cannabis NB has done a fantastic job in designing their stores, lining up supply, really getting ahead of this this space, whereas in provinces like B.C., uh, you know, we're still, the municipalities and the provincial government are still trying to figure out what this all means. So there's varying degrees of preparedness. Uh, From a federal government perspective, though, we know that the federal government has said if provinces are not ready in time for legalization, that they have the ability to be able to allow licensed producers who currently grow cannabis for medical purposes and who currently ship cannabis via mail order for medical purposes will be permitted to ship to those provinces that aren't ready on day one of legalization. So there is a plan B here by the federal government, but a uh, majority of the provinces uh, are prepared, are ready or somewhat ready to deal with this uh, should it turn on very quickly here. Deepak Anand with us, Vice President of Government Relations with Cannabis Compliance and a global cannabis industry expert. As we kind of look at where Canadians sit province by province in terms of being prepared to sell. And you mentioned B.C. not necessarily having a firm grip on this. How about Ontario? How firm a grip does Ontario seem to have? 
Well, uh, we know under the Wynn government previously uh, that the OCS, which is the Ontario Cannabis Stores, uh, that was going to deal with distributing cannabis for non-medical purposes were set up. Uh, and we know that year one accounted for 40 stores in the massive province of Ontario, which, uh, you know, isn't close to being enough. So uh, if that's the path that the Ford administration is still going to go down the, down the path of, um, you know, I, I predict there's probably going to be some significant lineups uh, in stores. Uh, what the OCS has said, though, is that they are preparing for an e-commerce delivery, so uh, Ontarians will at least be able to go online and, and order cannabis for non-medical purposes from the LCBO or the OCS website. Uh, so, it, you know, that's one form that I think you'll see access through. Uh, I don't expect stores to be ready in time for September, uh, like New Brunswick is. I mean, the lights are on in New Brunswick. The computers are just needs to be turned on, so there's a, a very high degree of preparedness. Uh, Ontario, I think, will will take some time. But, you know, eventually I think they'll, they'll probably get it right. And really, uh, the new government, it, you know, is going to play a significant impact on, on actually what happens. And uh, I know they've made some comments, uh, you know, in support of privatization and then, again, in support of public uh, distribution. So we'll, we'll see where they actually really end up. But, uh, but certainly not as prepared in Ontario as they are in New Brunswick. Now, Deepak, as far as New Brunswick goes, was that just somebody saying, hey, we're going to get this done and they've been able to get it done, whereas other provinces may not have had that initiative or that person with that initiative? Yeah, you know, very early on, uh, the province of New Brunswick, and this is going back four years when the Conservative government launched the medical cannabis system, which was going to commercialize production of cannabis for medical purposes. I mean, we weren't even thinking of non-medical. So when the Conservative government federally launched this program, New Brunswick came out, you know, really ahead and handed this file to the Economic Development Ministry and said Opportunities New Brunswick, which is a federal arm of the provincial government that deals with creating opportunities and funding businesses, said, you know, cannabis is something that we're going to be very committed to. And Premier Gallant, uh, you know, has, has thrown full support behind uh, not just cannabis production, but also retail distribution uh, as well as research. So they've, uh, in New Brunswick, formed a center of excellence in many ways uh, to deal with all facets of the cannabis industry, both on the medical and now the non-medical side. So, uh, you know, this is an example of provincial government really getting ahead and seeing, uh, you know, we are, you know, New Brunswick is uh, an economically deprived area and, you know, they want to bring jobs to that location. And uh, they've given significant incentives to businesses to set up in that area. Uh, And so it isn't a surprise that they're, you know, very well prepared for legalization because they've seen this file coming for for very many years now and have really done a lot to implement policy and procedures to, to get ahead of it. Deepak Anand with us, VP of Government Relations with Cannabis Compliance. Deepak, it would be amazing to get your thoughts on what you think will happen to the black market, because that's been a big question. Absolutely. Uh, you know, so, uh, you know, clearly we know uh, year one of legalization is not going to have all the forms of cannabis that uh, consumers, quite frankly, need. Uh, the federal task force, you know, pointed to this. We have numerous stats from U.S. states that have legalized cannabis for non-medical purposes. So in year one, what the federal government proposes to do is allow dried cannabis, fresh cannabis, and cannabis oil uh, to be sold through any of the distribution methods that the provinces choose to enable. Uh, whereas really what's selling in many areas across the world now are edibles and, and tinctures and extracts and different forms. Uh, people are moving away from smoking cannabis uh, in its raw form. Uh, there's certainly a subsect of Canadians that do that and will continue to do that, but we know that growing evidence in, in the U.S. suggests that uh, you know people want these, these, these varieties and forms, and the Liberal government is 
committed to enabling that in 2019. Uh, I think it's going to be challenging to eliminate the black market uh, when you've got this availability in that market for these forms of products in the short term. Uh, in the long term, however, uh, what the government has done federally is, you know, very cleverly drafted a series of criminal penalties to somebody that's working outside the system. So, uh, in other words, today prosecution is low for somebody operating in the black market. Uh, post-legalization, though, I think that is going to step up. You're going to see a lot more enforcement uh, occur. And as a result, I think the black market will be eliminated at least one year post-legalization. I don't think it's going to happen on day one. I think uh, in the interim, you may see an increase in the black market. But, but certainly over the long term, I think the, the government's got a good idea on, on how to really eliminate the black market. And it directly comes back to allowing what the market wants uh, to, to be in production and, and available for sale. Any idea where the people who participate in that black market as sellers go from there if if the market does wind up drying up? Uh, to be very honest, uh, we're seeing a lot of people that are currently would be considered the black market coming to our firm and saying, uh, you know, we see where this is going. We've been growing these products for years or we've been producing edibles for years, we've been making brownies and selling them to dispensaries. We'd like to be part of the legal system. Uh, and so what companies like ours does is helps these people uh, to become compliant with the regulations, uh, you know, really help them understand uh, how they can apply and where they can go. And, and so we're, we're really helping them become part of the legal industry. And I think that's where the, the majority of the push is going towards is, is people that have been operating in the shadows now are, are coming out and saying, you know, we realize this is a mainstream industry. We've had this experience that we've developed over years. We'd like to bring it and participate in the legal industry, which, uh, which is, is quite cool because uh, the federal government government has made provisions for people that are have been charged previously with minor offenses related to cannabis, which a lot of people that are currently operating in the black market have been, uh, to participate in the legal system. So there's certainly a lot of incentive on behalf of the federal government to have these, these black market operators uh, move over to the legal cannabis industry, and we're certainly seeing a lot of it. Deepak Anand, VP of Government Relations with Cannabis Compliance. Deepak, one more thing, and that is... We had two opportunities here. We could wait and wait and wait and try and set up everything and get systems in place and then have marijuana legalized and hopefully it drops into a perfect system. Another option is, of course, to have the basics in place, drop it in, and then allow things to kind of figure themselves out. That seems to be the way it's going. Is that the right way? Uh, absolutely. I mean, you know, the Prime Minister has, has, has constantly said legalization is a process. Uh, you know, I don't think anybody could be as ready. I mean, you know, uh, arguably you could, you could say, you know, we won't be ready in three years, but, you know, this is something that we need to proceed with, uh, particularly given how, uh, how much consumption there is of, of cannabis and illicit cannabis. And, you know, people under the age of 18 are using cannabis at a much higher rate in Canada than anywhere in the developed world. So, if you look at that stat uh, alone, uh, you know, the public health harms are significant on cannabis. So, uh, you know, could we take our time and, and perhaps get a whole bunch of things right? Yes. Uh, do we have that time? And, uh, you know, no, I, I think we need to get ahead of this problem and uh, really normalize uh, sort of, you know, people that are using cannabis, you know, normalize its use and uh, give them safe access to products that are regulated uh, and well-developed from a from public health and public safety approach. Deepak, thanks so much for your expertise in this. Thanks for having me. That is Deepak Anand, global cannabis industry expert and VP of Business Development and Government Relations with Cannabis Compliance. So he feels that the black market in time 
will be gone in the world of marijuana. Now, again, we have to remember that Deepak Anand works for a company that does assist people who want to grow marijuana legally, but that's going to be one of the most interesting things to watch in all of this, that it won't happen right away, and if they did make it legal now, Ontario's not ready. Ontario is not ready. Check out globalnews.ca. Just search globalnews.ca and marijuana. It's another story that I'll tweet out for you in the commercial break. Because they go looking for what will be the location of a marijuana store, a marijuana outlet in Scarborough. And it takes them a while to find it. And when they do, it looks like a place that's going to sell nothing. It looks like a place that is for lease. It isn't ready to go. It isn't like New Brunswick. So the black market is going to be alive and well in Ontario when people say, hey, smoke it if you got it. And no one has any who desires to have some. Where are they going to go? They're going to go to the same place they've been going for a while, and they're going to then be able to make it legal. Well, once this province does get its act together, and I don't know whether it's because it's the LCBO that's going to be running this, I still look at that and say, that is an organization that we allow to operate, and somebody needs to sit down and do some more auditing and fix things up. Because I don't think it's very well run at all. Oh, well, it brings in over a billion dollars a year. Give me a break. You know what it costs to operate that thing? About $4 billion a year. So, or actually, let me, let me put it in this perspective. It could bring in $4 billion a year, but it only brings in over a billion. To me, that doesn't make sense. That's, that's, not, that's not good math. So if we're going to wait for the LCBO to get itself on track and and figure all this out, it could take a while. But I'm interested to watch the black market in all of this. And the more I think about it, I don't know how else we do it, where we have a bit of a framework and then you just drop in, hey, here here it is, there you go, marijuana is legal, and then you kind of smooth it out. It's, you know what, it's kind of like carpeting. You roll the carpet down, but you have to get that, that knee kicker, and you have to kick it in under the baseboards. So we'll roll out the carpet pretty soon, and then the next while will be spent with that knee kicker. That's what it is, right? Isn't that what it's called, the knee kicker? And you, you knee kick it under the baseboards. And once we get that done, everything will probably live happily ever after. We'll let you know what's coming up after news. Take a quick break. I will tweet out that marijuana story. You can find it at Stubbs980. You're listening to London Live on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. I tweeted out the Global News story that will actually show you a picture of the spot in Scarborough that is supposed to be a place to go and buy marijuana. And as Deepak and Ann pointed out, there'll be big lines for a while because things are just not in place. Need some of those knee kickers. Does anybody actually own one? If you don't carpet, do you actually need one of those? Can they be fun in other ways? Or is it kind of like when you bought the Thighmaster? You thought, hey, this is going to be great. I'm going to use this a lot. And now it's just that thing that sits in a box downstairs. And you think, when we have a garage sale, I'm going to get a buck for that. I'm gonna, Definitely. I'm going to be able to swindle a dollar out of somebody who believes, yes, the Thighmaster. I remember when Suzanne Summers used to sell that to me. Every evening. And I thought, yeah, that, I'm going to use that. Can you get a buck for a Thighmaster? 
We don't have a thigh master. Got a few other things we can sell, though. Should have a garage sale. We are going to go to news, and then following news, we are going to talk about education and the challenge that rural schools face and how to deal with it. One of the solutions could be, and this hasn't been proposed by anybody but me right now, could you bus kids out of the city to a rural school? Would anybody go for that? I don't know if they would. We'll discuss it. This is London Live. My name is Mike Stubbs. You're listening to Global News Radio, 980 CFBL. Lambton County OPP have found something that somebody's going to want to want back. It's a ring, and they say it's related to a Canadian hockey championship. It is likely commemorative in nature. And they are hoping to return it to its rightful owner. So that's all they're saying about it. Related to a Canadian hockey championship, likely commemorative in nature, and they're hoping to return it to its rightful owner. If you know somebody who had a ring stolen or lost, they don't even say whether it's stolen or lost, but again, they don't want to give away too much information here so that somebody else can call up and say, yeah, here's what I know about the ring, and it's like this and like this. We were at a golf tournament for Tim Hortons a little while ago, and somebody found $80 on the course and turned it in, and we were trying to find the owner of the money. And it wasn't exactly a case of guess how many jelly jelly beans are in a jar, but but it could have been. Fortunately, people aren't like that. And I'm not even sure whether they ended up finding the rightful owner. But when you've got a sum of money, you can't just say, well, found $80. Oh, yeah, that's mine. How much did you lose? $80. Oh, well, that matches. Here you go. You can't do it that way. So that's why Lambton County OPP are doing it this way. They have found a ring. That's all they're saying. Canadian Hockey Championship, likely commemorative in nature. And it was found, uh, or at least they went to the area of Hill and Baird Streets within the town of Corona, and that's where they found it. So if it sounds like anybody you know who might say, yeah, I I had a ring stolen, don't know where it was, they might be able to get it back. So you can contact Lambton County OPP. We'll take a quick break. Up next, what we're going to do is we are going to talk education, and we're going to look at the difficulty that rural schools are facing in keeping population. And what that means, it means that they don't have as much fun stuff. Sports teams suffer. Band suffers. Hey, we're going to have a drama club. And the drama club is going to do a performance. And that performance is going to be a monologue. You don't want to have that. But that's the reality. You don't necessarily have enough students to make a rich experience in some spots. So what do you do? Do you live with it? Do you say, well, that's that's just the way it is. You're going to school for school anyway. What are some of the options? Well, there's a group that thinks about options for a lot of things quite a bit, and that is People for Education. And we'll be joined by Annie Kidder in just a moment on London Live on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Let's dip into education for just a minute. We're getting set for the end of the school year comes up end of next week. Why don't we take a look at rural schools and some of what they are facing with some population decline 
and what to do about this. Annie Kidder is one of the founders of People for Education and joins us now on London Live. Annie, how are things on this Tuesday afternoon? They are very good. Not as hot as they were before. That's always nice. <laughs> and good for kids who uh, may not have air conditioning right around this time of year in the schools. <laughs> exactly. uh, I know we've talked about that before. We want to talk a little bit about rural schools today and the idea that we've got a lot of rural schools that are still in very good shape, but populations aren't what they used to be. What exactly are we facing in this province with regard to that? Well, we're facing the same thing that provinces and territories across Canada are facing and in, and in the United States, um, which is that there's been, for one thing, a kind of exodus from rural areas into urban areas. And also, for another thing, we're all having fewer children. So before, you know, I come from a family of five. Now, you know, families are more likely to have two kids. So those two things combined have meant, you know, quite a bit of emptying out of, of rural areas in the north. And in terms of education, that means schools that are at full, struggles to deal with funding that, you know, that really still operates better for boards that have more bigger schools in them. And it, and it creates an inequity. And, you know, we're definitely, People for Education is releasing our, our annual report on Ontario schools on Monday on the 25th. And, and we're still seeing, um, and in some cases we're seeing a worsening of the, of the gap between rural and urban schools where, the, you know, rural schools are less likely to have guidance counselors and music teachers and, um, you know, special education supports and all of the things that are, that are very important parts of education. So it's, it's something that we need to look at for that reason, but also I think for the, the other reason is because of the divide that it's creating. And I, there are a lot of people talking about the divided society we, we're living in. And we have to be very careful that we're not kind of disenfranchising a whole, a whole group of people who, who choose, who want to, who are very valuable to all of us um, because they live in rural areas and in northern Ontario. We are talking right now with Annie Kidder, one of the founders of People for Education here on London Live. Annie, if we're looking at the way that funding is allocated, is it based solely on population in a school? It's not based solely on that, and it's based on populations in boards rather than in schools. Um, and, and certainly there's some, you know, sort of augmenting the funding. There, are, there have been patches put on the funding formula to try and deal with the fact that in some boards they have very small schools that are very far apart. Um, so there have been attempts to address it. Uh, but for the most part, most funding is allocated on a per-pupil basis. So you got more students, you get more money. And that makes sense, um, but it makes it hard for rural areas where the, the average size of schools are much, much smaller, so they can't have the, you know, the so-called kind of economies of scale, um, and where the schools are farther apart. So it's hard there. You can't just close all the small schools and make, you know, five big ones. That's, that has a huge impact on... Everybody, you know, you know, the towns, the cities, the kids, the, you know, communities. Um, but it's, and we haven't solved the problem. And in some cases, actually, it, it's worse than it was. And we have to, again, we don't want to, I think we have to think as people who live in Ontario, do we care about people who live in, live in small towns and rural areas in the north? And if we do, then how are we going to make sure that they, you know, can have viable lives? 
if we're looking at cities, are we seeing schools bursting at the seams? In some cases, in some areas. So there's areas of growth in in most sort of suburban areas. There definitely are schools bursting at the seams. Um, And again, there's always that problem of you've got one area where there's enormous growth and then sometimes in in downtowns, for instance, of some cities where there there isn't growth, it's too expensive for normal people to live, (laughs) for one thing. Um, So, you know, we're, we're always going to have to be dealing with differences in populations and trying to figure out how to plan ahead or, you know, make education funding work uh, in a way that works for the most people. Um, You know, but that's part of the job of, of government and the education system. We have a new government in place. Any hints, suggestions for them that you would like to make and like to see them carry out? Well, I think it will be interesting. I mean, if we look at, uh, you know, we have, we do have a new government. A, a lot of uh, the a lot of the, the writings where this particular party was elected were actually in uh, in more rural areas, um, and maybe there's some hope in those areas that there will be a little bit more representation of of their needs. We did just have a whole review of the process for closing schools um, and how to make that work better. Um, I'm not sure that just changing the process is going to have any impact. And, we, you know, we have been talking about that for a long time, that really there are funding changes that need to be made. So maybe it's one of the things this government, you know, may look at is how do we make this, how do we make funding work better for uh, for rural and northern schools? And, you know, and maybe there will be more likelihood of doing that because there's more representation from those areas in the government. Annie Kidder, one of the founders of People for Education with us on London Live. Annie, could you ever see a time, and I know some towns that do this, but could you see a time when maybe it becomes more widespread that students who are at schools that may be bursting at the seams are bused to smaller rural schools? Well, I mean, it's an interesting idea. What we don't want is kids spending hours on school buses. We already have that. You know, we already have instances of kids spending, you know, an hour and a half each way, which no grown-up would want to do. Um, so we have to be very, very careful about whether or not that's possible. The other things that make it complicated are often that, you know, where the boundary lies is between two different school boards. So are you going to bus kids out of a, you know, a school that's bursting at the seams in Brampton to a more rural school somewhere just north of there, but it's in a different board. Um, so, you know, one part of you can see how, yeah, that'd be, a, that'd be an interesting idea, but then there are, you know, many, many layers of complexity to being able to do that. Um, you know, but it's it's definitely one of the options. But we do have to be careful that just busing students around is is not necessarily the answer to any of these problems. If we look ahead to the report that comes out on Monday, anything you can uh, lay out for us that, that we should watch for? Well, I think for us there's two parts to it. One is what we just talked about, that there are inequities in the system based on where you live, your parents' income, your parents' level of education, and you know, and, and certain kids are getting less because of all three of those things. And the other thing that we're talking about is, you know, 
it's a time where really, you know, what are the new basics for public education? For uh, for hundreds of years, we've thought of the three R's, but it's really time that we make the shift to understand that in today's world, with today's kinds of jobs and the complexity of today's problems, uh, there's really a new set of basics that we have to make sure that all kids are getting, and that includes kids in rural areas, urban areas, whether kids' parents are rich or poor, uh, that they've got to have access to those. So if we were to examine what some of those things could be, what would you look at? Well, it's, and it's not, to, to us, it's actually even before thinking of technology. It's thinking of, you know, are we building, are we uh, educating kids with the, all of the sort of creativity, problem-solving, complex thinking uh, skills that they need? Uh, do they understand how to collaborate with other people, how to take criticism and, you know, use that input to change what they're doing and keep going? Are they able to persist? Are they able to understand other people's points of view? These are all things that certainly employers are saying that kids need, and we have to make sure that these are built into the school system. How close are we, do you think, right now to having those things there? Well, we could be closer. I think that, you know, we think that Ontario has the capacity to be a leader internationally in this way. We're certainly not right now. Uh, and it's definitely going to take a shift in that area so that we're we're embedding those, you know, as I'm learning the, the history of uh, Canada, I am also learning uh, to understand different people's perspectives, to be able to collaborate with other students, to be able to uh, find, you know, take what I've learned in one place and apply it to another. These are all the, the kind of basic skills that kids need now. Annie, thank you so much for your time. We'll look forward to the report on Monday. Okay, thanks a lot. Annie Bye-bye. Kidder. Annie Kidder, one of the founders of People for Education. So it wasn't too long ago when they revamped the curriculum, and in a way it sounds like need to revamp the curriculum. I don't know if that's necessarily, you know, what that's not what Annie's saying, but we always need to have things laid out and, and be ready for for what is coming and and how to relate it to what people are going to need when they get out into the job world. That's that's nothing new. The problem is things move much quicker now. And so if you're looking at somebody doing an assignment the same way they've always been doing it, you're probably doing them a disservice. Here, write this 20-page essay. Okay, it's useful to know how to write, but very few people consume information in the same way that they used to. And even if they were somebody who would say, you know what, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to read this big, long article. That article can be made better if it has a video in it, if it has a little piece of audio in it, if it has pictures in it. And that's something that I really do feel a lot of schools are getting themselves into. If you look at at assignments that are turned in now, if you look at the amount of group work that is done, I think... Changes already are coming, but yeah, it would be good to have kind of one of those little reviews as to, okay, what's what's going right, what's going wrong? And it goes back to what we've talked about before. We got talking about this with EQAO and the idea that that is, if it's still $50 million, $50 million on fire. Somebody's just lighting that money on fire in this province. I think EQAO is a mess. It is unneeded. What you need, you need trust in the people who are carrying out the work.
need trust in the teachers. You need to be able to say, okay, what's working here, what isn't, and then act on it. A lot of workplaces will do that. How many people fill out a survey? Raise your hand if you fill out a survey at work that says, what do you like about this place, what do you not like about this place? And the good places will take a look at all of those lists collectively and say, okay, well, look, this keeps coming up. Let's fix that. Oh, and they like this? Let's keep doing that. That's what we need. That's how Finland's system works. Finland's education system has a lot of trust in the way that things are carried out by the teachers. We need more of that. I really do believe that. And in doing so, there's a caveat to it. You've got to make sure that the teachers that you have are top end. Because, yeah, there are a lot of great educators. My kids are coming through the public system now. I don't have too many complaints, but I'm not complaint-free. So, 99% sure. Make whatever percentage you want, but make sure you have the ability to take the ones who are not doing the job that needs to be done and either make changes so that they are or... Find a way to say, no, this isn't working out. This isn't where you belong, and it's hurting the kids. So we can't have this. That's a topic for another day. We are nearly out of time. We'll take a quick break. We'll let you know what is ahead, and we'll also talk about tomorrow and beyond. This is London Live on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. World Cup of Soccer is continuing. Thanks again to Jurgen Bell, president of the German Canadian Club, for his help and Understanding how things are working now with regard to serving alcohol, which by way of the Ontario Lottery and Gaming or Alcohol and Gaming Commission, you can do if you choose to in an establishment until the end of the World Cup. You can serve as early as 9 a.m. Thanks to John Winston today. We talked about the success that this city has had in two Hockey Canada events that have taken place in just the last eight months. The game that was hosted here at Budweiser Gardens before the World Junior Hockey Championship. I mean, to think that people would sit and still cheer in a 9 nothing game in an exhibition is crazy. Players on that World Junior team that ended up winning gold talked about playing in London and how crazy that was that at 9 nothing people were still cheering long into the tournament. And they got together yesterday. They would have talked about it again. And then last night, a huge success at the Hockey Canada Foundation Gala. Thanks to Deepak Anand as we talked about black market and marijuana. And we'll see exactly when legislation is passed and when royal assent arrives and when exactly marijuana is going to be legal in Canada. And thanks again to Annie Kidder from People for Education. Coming up tomorrow... It is a best of online as the Toronto Blue Jays are taking on the Atlanta Braves on the radio. That will be a 12.30 start, and then we're back on Thursday. We'll talk about a woman who can see movement, even though she's blind. Thanks to Christian Davino. My name is Mike Stubbs. News is next on Global News Radio 980 CFPL.